0: course, this morning we're meeting together because it's Remembrance Sunday, which is always the second Sunday in November. It gives folk an opportunity to remember those who have died in the basically the two world wars and other conflicts, and uh, they're gathering together as we are in church, or as others are, meeting around war memorials in villages and towns around this country, rather like it's happening on High Street today. I've always celebrated Remembrance Sunday, but not for the two people you might think I would do so. You notice I'm wearing two poppies. I've, I wear this all the year now. The two poppies are this one here is Australia with the Australian seven-star, sorry uh, seven-cross <coughs> on it on their badge, and also their um, their national tree is a great uh, golden wattle, it's known as. And, uh, that is in recognition that my grandfather served in the Australian Army and was killed in Gallipoli in 1915. This one here is the RAF emblem on a poppy in members of my father who was killed serving, he was a career serviceman, he worked his way up to a wing commander, he was a test pilot in the RAF and he was killed, uh, testing an aircraft, one of the American aircraft that was sent over which was absolutely useless, but it, uh, the engine stopped and he crashed and was killed. I was five months old at the time. But the two people I stand for and remember, these two people, they're part of my family, I'm their blood descendants, but they had no influence on me. The two people that had influence on me were their, their wives, my grandmother and my mother. They brought me up, they trained me, they loved me, and it was through them, I am what I am today, not through my grandfather or my father, and I always remember, I think the ones I always remember, are those who are left behind, the widows and orphans whose lives have been so changed because their husbands, or in some cases now their wives, have died in the service of this country. And today I would also like to remember another lady who served this country faithfully for 70 years. She promised... In South Africa on the 21st birthday, I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, should be devoted to your service, and to the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. She's certainly done that with the help of God to fulfil that promise. I was 11 years old when King George VI died. I've now lived over the reign of three monarchs. Anyone here before, born before the 20th of January 1936? Who? You have served under five George V, George VI, Edward VIII, and, jo- and Queen Elizabeth, and now Charles. 86% of the population before the 8th of September only recognised one monarch. I was surprised, I I really got involved with the events around the Queen's death, and I was surprised to learn that the Queen's funeral, uh, codenamed London Bridge, was first drawn up in the 1960s. Well, in advance, I mean, she was at most 40. These plans were reviewed two or three times a year and involved, of course, the Queen, the Church of England, the Metropolitan Police, the Armed Services, the Royal Parks, the London Boroughs, the Greater London Authority, and the Transport for London. And these plans were in the event of the Queen dying in London. But because the Queen died in Balmoral, another plan was activated called Operation Unicorn, which covered all the arrangements in Scotland, and finally the flight of the Queen's coffin back to Northolt Airfield. I was amazed on that journey from the Northolt back to London, to see how many people were gathered to see the first pass by in the pouring rain. I noticed there were even cars drawn up on the fast lane of those roads going out of London with people standing by waiting to see the hearse go by. Talk about being prepared. The Queen's lead-lined coffin was made over 30 years ago out of English oak and the company that made it went out of business in 2005. It weighs about 550 pounds and it requires eight soldiers to carry it. I worked that out, that they have to carry 70 pounds each, and I watched those men, it was amazing, they, they, they stand there and they're lifting this up to shoulder height, then swivel underneath and hold it on their shoulders, that's 70 pounds each of those men are carrying, they're all over 6 foot 2 tall, they belong to what is known as the Queen's Company, part of the Grenadier Guards, and I'm told there are 36 of them uh, with, uh, soldiers with 3 officers, and if you notice, on the walk, the the hearses journey up the hill to Windsor Castle, there were 18 soldiers marching side by side along the uh, hearse. Many of them were in Iraq at the time of the death and they had to be flown back quickly so they could feel the obligation to look after her body both in life and in death. It's their responsibility to to see the transition between the monarchs and to see they carry the Queen's coffin the emblems of the Queen's power the uh, imperial crown, the auburn scepter were already located in the coffin uh, when it was uh, draped with the royal standard it was then brought in by the soldiers onto the cutter felt in Westminster Hall and two other items were added to that stand the first one was the Queen's company, Colour, was laid on the floor of the catafalque at the foot. That company, that Colour is 70 years old because it was created when the Queen became Queen and of course it's now has finished its job, now she's died. This is the oldest surviving uh, colour that there actually is. There have been a lot of other new colours from all the other companies. It's also laid across the coffin when the time of in state finished and before the actual funeral of the Queen. The second item which uh, was added was one of four processional crosses belonging to Westminster Abbey and was placed at the head of the catafalque. This cross is called the Wanamaker Cross and was donated to Westminster Abbey by an American businessman called Rodman Wanamaker and was first used on Christmas Eve 1922. It is now placed at the head of all coffins which lie in state at Westminster Hall. The Wanamaker family made its fortune through its departmental stores, particularly in Philadelphia. It was later bought by Macy's to add to their chain. Wanamaker was a generous philanthropist and he presented Queen Alexandra as a tribute to Edward VII, a silver altar and silver lectern for St Mary Magdalene Church in Sandringham. But back to the Wanamaker cross, which is made of silver with ivory panels which depict various events in the life of our Lord. Um, on the other side is the Lord in glory together with groups of apostles. The staff is made of silver gilt and records that the gift was made by, Rod- made by Rodman Wanamaker and is also my text for today. This is where I got my text from. The text is actually this. Non sumit gens adversus gentem gladium et non dissent alter bellegiare. That is my text. I'm not speaking in tongues, I haven't been suddenly lifted up, it is Latin. I sent an email to Westminster Abbey asking for which of the two possible biblical passages this text came from. But unfortunately I've had no reply. The problem is is this, that in English both passages say exactly the same. The translation could have come from Isaiah 2, chapter 2, verse 4, or Micah 4, chapter 3, which state, Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. I thought a very appropriate text for today. In many ways it's not surprising that the Holy Spirit directed both Micah and Isaiah to say exactly the same to the nations they were preaching to. They were contemporaries, and Micah prophesied to Israel, the northern kingdom, and Isaiah to Judah, the southern kingdom. I think we would all agree it would be very lovely if all these prophecies were actually come to pass. Imagine if you can, what a difference it would make if we no longer set aside money to arm our forces. Last year, this country spent $64 billion on armaments. There were three countries ahead of us in that expenditure race. Named the United States of America with over $800 billion, followed by China with $293 billion, and then India with $76 billion. We actually beat Russia, who spent $66 billion. The world military expenditure totaled $2.1 trillion in 2021. Just think of the benefits to mankind if all this, every nation uses money to redirect it to health, education, housing and recreation. We can dream, but the reality is there are wars and conflicts all over this planet. To keep things a little simple, I'm going to remind you of all the conflicts the UK has been involved in since the end of the Second World War, with a, often by itself, but occasionally in a coalition. 1944 to 48, Palestine. It was never to be looked after, but then it was in the 48 that Israel became a nation of its own right again. Malaya in 1948 to 1960. I remember talking to one of our members, Bob Andrews, a long time ago, who was a national serviceman, and he told me that ten national servicemen, including him, were sent over to Malaya to fight the battle there. Only two returned home. The Yangtze Incident in 1949, the Korean War 1950 to 53, the Kenya emergency in 1952 to 60, when the Mau Mau were enforced in that country. The Cyprus emergency, when the southern, the Cypriots wanted to be united with Greece, but not, the northern part, mainly Turkey, didn't want that to happen. There was the Vietnam War in 55 to 57. The Suez Crisis in 1956, where we had to give back the Suez Canal to the Egyptians. The Brunei Revolt in 1962 to 63. The Indonesian, um, squabble which uh, took place in 1963 to 66 the aid in emergency 1963 to 67 the northern ireland the troubles 1969 to 1998 the falkland conflict uh, 1982 with argentina the gulf war 90 to 91 the Syrialone civil war 91 to 2002 the bosnian war 92 to 95 the kosovo war 98 to 99 The war in Afghanistan, 2001 to 2014. The Iraq War, 2003 to 2011. The Libya conflict and the Syria conflict, both from 2011 to the present day. The Yemen conflict, uh, 2014 to the present day. And the coalition defeat ISIS, 2014 to the present day. That's just this country. Us, this country, our soldiers, our airmen, our seamen. Fighting all that time. When I looked at the list, I was only—I realised only one year we didn't have any uh, conflict, 1961. Then I remember there were three things that the list I managed to get missed out: the Cod Wars. Do you remember the Cod Wars? Some of you will. 1958 to 61, 1972 to 73, 1975 to 76. That was when Iceland increased its territorial waters up to a maximum of 200. Uh, nautical miles, and that had a huge effect on our northern fishing fleets. Fortunately, it was a bloodless conflict. One tallman was injured, 15 figures, and one supply ship were damaged. There are multitudes of squabbles and conflicts going on around the war. For me, the two most frightening, and I I do exclude the first, the Second World War, because that's my earliest memory being carried downstairs wrapped I up in mean, my mother's fur coat to go in the, the Morrison shelter under the kitchen table because of bombing. That, I think that was my mother's two prized possessions, me and the fur coat. I think. <laughs> but the two others which really worried me and put, you know, scared me were the Cuban Missile Crisis in October '62 between Russia and America when Russia was t- planning to make a Cuba a missile base and currently Russia and Ukraine. The question we need to ask is this, does the text about nations not being at war anymore, does the text give us any indication as to when these two prophecies are likely to come a reality? We need to look at these two readings in a little more detail. As I said earlier, the passages are very similar and cover three verses. I'm just going to read you the passage from Micah 4, 1-3. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of mountains, it will be exalted above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of God. He will teach us his ways, and we may walk in his paths. The law will grow out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples, and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. <clears throat> they will beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against a nation, nor will they train for war anymore. <coughs> Both these scriptures indicate that these events will take place in the last days. But what exactly are the last days? I'd like us to look together at a few scriptures and hopefully give us an indication of when they are. At Pentecost, Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem... Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this, was spoke, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last day, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. And people like me, in other words, old men will dream dreams. This was the time when the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples following the ascension of our Lord into heaven. There was a time of confusion when Peter addressed the crowd to allay their fears. He reminds them of the prophecy of Joel. As far as Peter was concerned, this prophecy had just been fulfilled, and the last days that Joel referred to had just arrived with the coming of the Holy Spirit, and would continue in the, in the years and centuries ahead. Joel's words were to Peter, Peter a present reality. And Peter also said in his first epistle, chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, "...for you know that it was not with pedigree things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of the Christ, the Lamb, without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake." I particularly love this passage about God's plan of salvation. I was talking about the Queen's funeral being planned many years beforehand. But listen to this. Without Blemish was chosen before the creation of the world. God's plan of salvation was was designed before Jesus spoke the words that brought this universe into being. That's planning in advance. But Peter says... These last times, very clearly he's talking about the present past and present times. The writer of the Hebrews uh, wrote in his epistle, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets in, by, at many times and in many ways. But in these last days it is spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. These three verses together indicate that we've been living in the last days for, for 2,000 years. This thought becomes even clearer when we read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5. to five. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control... Brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having the form of godliness, but denying its power. Have nothing to do with these people. Very often this passage is brought up to demonstrate that we are now living in the last days, but surely has there ever been a time when such things are not true? Again the Bible therefore is defined in the last days as the period between the first and second of the advents of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are a few other scriptures I could refer to, but I don't want to go down the road where we enter the realm of pre-, post- or amillennialism. I looked at this some 40 years ago, but forgotten what decision I've come to. So I've got to go back and look at it once again. I've never heard a sermon preached on the second coming, have you? In recent years? I can't think of one, and I've been here 50 years, that's not enough time. I'm sure Bob must have done during this time. just want to look at a few verses from Matthew chapter 24. This is the word of Jesus, and worth noting. Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. You will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pains. And then Jesus continues in verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the sun, but only the Father. Recently, I spent a few days with my daughter Hannah and her family in Liverpool. And while I was there, I watched a film called Hacksaw Ridge. It's well worth watching if you've never watched it. It's about a young man who refused to take a bomb, but he won the highest military award that America has to offer. The thought struck me while watching this film is if the presence of the church, if the presence of the church in the world has made a difference to the number of conflicts we have, are there less because of Christianity? Would there be more if the church didn't exist? I just leave that as a question. So, what do we think about the last days in the passage from Isaiah or Micah? The peace they mention in their prophecies cannot relate to a definition of the last days as Peter and Paul mentioned because Jesus warned there will always be wars and rumours of wars and the end is still to come. In my opinion, the only time that nations will not lift up sword against nation can occur when Jesus comes again in his full position as sole ruler of the earth. He is the king and he alone will rule And his rule is absolute. That cannot be said of any of our kings and queens today. They are figureheads. They don't have the power. But Jesus will come as king and he will have the power. He will judge between nations and decide on disputes for many people. He will not tolerate war. A thought. The reign of Messiah may come soon or maybe many years in the future. We just do not know. But the one thing we can determine is that Jesus can reign in our hearts and our minds and our our lives right now if we accept him. All we need to do is realise that we are all sinners. We have sinned against God. But as we read, God is loving and merciful. And because of this he arranged before the creation of the world that his beloved son Jesus should suffer a dreadful death. As Paul writes to the Ephesians, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And just to finish with the last word of of Jesus, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life